Okay. Uh, so this morning we're, we're back into our series uh, titled uh, Faith at Works. We're looking at the book of James. Uh, we've been taking time both uh, this year and last year to examine what it means to have a faith uh, that is effective, a faith that is faithful, a faith that is fruitful, one that brings glory to God and the power of the Holy Spirit. In light of all that James writes within his passage, within this book, and in, through the number of past, through the different passages we've looked at so far, um, and you may or may not be aware, uh, Andrew was actually down to preach uh, today, um, but he still has COVID. He tested positive on Friday, so I'm I'm stepping in. This is basically a B team tonight, so or this afternoon. Um, so we're not going to do the next part of our passage uh, in James as Andrew. Had already has already prepped for that, so we're going to skip that. We're going to jump over that and look at what would have been next Sunday's uh, message, and then hopefully next Sunday Andrew will be COVID-free and he can come back and preach what would have been this Sunday's message. So this afternoon we're going to take time to focus on on three verses. Uh, we're going to look at James four and verses eight to ten. So if you have your Bibles, let's have a look at this. James four and verses eight to ten. So James says this. Uh, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. Yeah, Father, I know we've just prayed, but we want to pray again. We ask that you would take these words and that you would shape these words into our heart and mould us so that we become more Christ-like. Uh, be with me as I share, be with each one of us as we are listening and attentive. And Lord, would you direct us time in your name. Amen. Uh, so this afternoon's message is titled, A Drawing Near Faith, uh, for obvious reasons. This is the essence of what James says in the first part of verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, and as we, under, as we begin and as we take time to think about drawing near to God, it's important uh, we understand this in light of a bigger uh, biblical context of what James says. And I wonder this afternoon, when you look at your own life, uh, when you look at all that's going on, when you think about all that's uh, priority, all that's prominent, uh, all that you think about in any given day, to what extent is there a focus? Is there a longing? To what extent is there a heart's desire to draw near to him, to know him more deeply? I wonder if you could ask that question of yourself this afternoon. I ask that question today, and I'm, I'm not saying to what extent is there a focus, a longing, a heart's desire to know more about God. That's not what I'm saying. Um, that's important. It's important we do know more about God. We need to carry good theology and good doctrine. It's definitely a key foundation to how our relationship with God is directed. But that's not a question I'm asking. The question I ask is how much of your life is centered upon the purpose of knowing God more deeply in your life in a personal, intimate way. Now we know from our Bibles, this is a common theme. Uh, the gift of being known by God and in turn, the gift of being able to know God. Uh, we find it throughout the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. We read these words, and I just love these words from the, the prophet. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. 
the wealthy should not boast in his wealth, but the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord showing faithful love, justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. So God through Jeremiah says, if you're going to boast about one thing, if there's anything in your life that you're going to boast about, it has to be only ever this one thing, that you know God, you know God in your life. When you and I boast, whatever we might boast in, uh, what we're doing is sharing with others something of what we value, something of what we treasure, whatever that something might be, good or bad. And what greater treasure is there in our lives that we can in humility boast that we know God and that we are known by God. And it's not just Jeremiah, Jesus himself underlines the absolute importance for you and I to know God in our lives. And so important was this for Christ that he says, if you don't know God, you're not a Christian. This is what Jesus says. You cannot be a Christian who does not know God. It's as simple as that. So have a look at John 17, verse 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So eternal life, relationship with God, salvation with him is that we might know him. To know God is to know Jesus. So we can't get any clearer than that from the mouth of Jesus. And then Jeremiah, Jesus, finally have a look at what the Apostle Paul writes. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 10 to 11. So Paul says this, My goal is to know him. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So Paul made it his central life ambition, his sole focus, the beating heart of all that he was, of all that Paul did, was to know Christ, to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. And I wonder this afternoon, in light of all these words from Jeremiah, Jesus, from Paul, does that sound like your life? Does that sound like your life? Does everything that you do or all of what you do revolve around the fact that behind all of your busyness and all the different things that go on in your life, your heart is one where you long to know him more deeply. Is that characteristic of who you are? And I was reading these verses. As I was doing that, I couldn't help but think about the 17th century monk, Brother Lawrence. Has anyone heard of his story? No one, okay. <laughs> Lawrence was, was an ordinary man of God. Um, he had ordinary life responsibilities. His whole motto every single day was to practice the presence of God. That, that was his whole kind of goal in life. And what that meant was that he would consciously, consistently remind himself that God was with him in whatever he found himself doing. Like anything of what he was doing, he always reminded himself, God is with me. So he would prepare meals. He would famously wash pots, dishes, he would do maintenance work in the monastery. And governing all of that was him reminding himself that God loved him and God was with him. Lawrence says this in his own words, I was able to keep myself by a simple attention and a general fond regard to God, which I may call an actual presence of God, or to speak better, a habitual, silent and secret conversation of the soul with God. And I wonder for you and I, how often do we miss out on the experience of knowing God and the ordinary, ordinary, ordinary stuff of life? 
we often think, you know, this is sacred. And these other things are, are secular. Therefore, I'm going to meet God in these areas, but these areas, I'm just going to do my own thing. And yet here we see Lawrence through his testimony. We see someone who invited God in these normal, ordinary things of life. See, when James says here in our passage, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, you could easily mistake that statement with the idea of filling your life with lots of Christian stuff. Like we think, draw near to God. Draw near to God means I'm going to be busy looking like a Christian. We can think that. And the mistake you can make is to think Christian activity equates knowing God in your life. And that's nonsense. When James says, all that he says in these words, what he's getting at and what, bro what Brother Lawrence understood so deeply was that more important than what you and I do is, is why we do it. So more important than, than doing is being. Who are we? Why are we doing what we do? What, mo what motivates you, you and I, to do the things we do in any given day? Is it just to do things or is it worship? What is the central driving purpose behind our daily activity? Is it for ourselves? Is it for someone else? Is it for something else? Or is it for God? Is a love for God so that we might know God more deeply in the ordinary stuff of our lives? Or is it a drive and a purpose for something else? That's, these are questions I'm asking myself first and foremost before I ask any of you guys. It's important to ask myself these questions because I can so easily fall into these categories of sacred, secular. Worship God in these areas, but in these areas I'm just going to do my own thing. What's incredible is that when you and I, by God's grace, get this inner attitude right in all the things of our lives, then it always leads to outward actions that are right as well. So if we get the inward right, we get the outward right. Meaning that drawing near to God is not just the right heart attitude, it's a practical overflow of a heart that's right with God through good works. It's precisely why James says, <clears throat> faith without works is dead. I mean, that's our, the whole title of our series, Faith That Works. Faith That Works is Dead is precisely why he makes these statements elsewhere in his letter. So James says, James 1.19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. So we can only ever do that if God is at work in our lives to begin with. There has to be something going on inside before we can then be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then James says, James 2.15-16, if a brother or sister is without clothes, and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? What good is it? So again, this all points to the fact that God is doing something on the inside to begin with. And then, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of good mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense, James 3, 17. Again, all of this is an outward reflection of an inward action of God in your life. Alec Motye, in his commentary in James, speaks about the battle we all face as followers of Jesus. And he describes this as a battle to live near God. And I think that's a really helpful phrase for us tonight, this afternoon. The battle to live near God. And it is a battle, no question about it. It's a battle to live near God. So he says, the battle for regularity and discipline in Bible reading, prayer, private and public worship, feasting at the Lord's table, devoting ourselves to Christian fellowship, cultivating every appointed avenue whereby we can draw near to him, 
fellowship with God and its consequent blessing of his fellowship with us does not just happen. We cannot drift into it any more than we can drift into holiness. It is our first obedience. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've, you've heard of that, uh, that, that classic Christian song, and I think it's about 40 years old now. Uh, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I'm not going to sing it again. Don't worry, guys. But draw near to God. I sang it this morning. So draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Jeremy's cracking up here. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And it just goes on and on like that. And it's quite a nice sounding song. Um, I don't know about you, but the way that song is sung, I mean, it sounds so nice as we sing it. I don't think we've ever sung it here. How pleasant it is. It's almost like we're all sitting in clouds. We're all playing harps. We're dressed in white. Our faces are glowing with holiness. This idea of drawing near to God seems so blissful and so easy to do. But if the song was as nice and pleasant as the command, we would have zero issue drawing near to God. So it's, it's easy to sing. It's a lot harder. That's me playing a harp by the way. It's easy to sing. It's a lot harder to actually live it out day to day. We know that drawing near to God is difficult. Drawing near to God is difficult, no question. It involves tears. It involves a dying to self. It involves a letting go of hurt and offence. It involves a not trusting in feelings, something we just sang about. It involves a constant repentance and an intentional inviting God's presence into your life. So to draw near to God is hard. It's brutal. It's tough. And Denison Baptist Church, that makes sense, does it not? Does it not make sense for it that it would be hard? If anything is of worth or value in our lives, then it's going to be difficult. And we know this from so many other examples in our lives. Uh, Pauline and I have these fairly regular moments where we work together as a couple to assemble furniture. And um, I think it's, it's maybe a helpful thing for future marriage prep classes. One of the sessions could be where the couple assemble furniture together. Um, and that's really like a window into their relationship to see all what's going on. It brings out the best, but it, no doubt about it, it brings out the worst in, in any couple. But how worth it for Paul and I when we get through the end of that flat pack valley and we sit on top of that mountain that's called Finished, and praise God, we are still able to talk to each other uh, after that experience. So assembling furniture is difficult, but no doubt about it, it's worth it, because we have furniture at the end of it, hopefully. Um, having a healthy diet is difficult to maintain, but without question, it's worth it. Staying physically fit, it's hard, it's difficult, but without question, we all know how important it is. Being an organized person is difficult. It can be a real challenge to keep going, to keep being organized. But without question, it's so worth it. So if anything is good, if anything is of value, if anything is undoubtedly important in our lives, then you will know it will be difficult to keep and maintain in our lives. And conversely, more often than not, if something is not difficult, if something is, is not challenging to us, if it doesn't involve discipline, then more often than not, it's not important. Let me just be so clear with this this afternoon. You can be under no illusion about this. Drawing near to God will be difficult, but it will be so, so worth it. It will be so worth it to draw near to him. 
And as difficult as it is to draw near to God, we know that we do not do it alone. We're not doing it by ourselves. In fact, it's nothing of us that can achieve drawing near to God. Drawing near to God is in God's power. We stand on his promise. We rest in his grace. So yes, it may be difficult. It may lead to a dying of self. It will lead to a dying of self. But in Christ, it is extremely possible. It's extremely possible. So Denison Baptist Church, let me just invite you to be a people who really do, do echo the words of Hosea. Hosea 12, 6, the prophet says this, but you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and always put your hope in God. And I just love how that, that verse is ordered because we begin by putting our hope in God. The last part, we begin by putting our hope in God that allows us then to, to live our lives in a way that externally glorifies him. So we maintain love and justice. And at the heart of all of that is a desire to return to him each and every day. So we draw near to God from the inside out and there's no other way. Our hope in him means that we will choose to maintain love and justice and he will be glorified. And James doesn't leave it there. He then from this verse continues to unpack what drawing near to God looks like. And like so much of his letter, uh, James chooses to be very clear about the responsibility that lies before every single one of us. And what drawing near to God should look like for each one of us, both internally and externally. And this afternoon, as we look at these remaining two verses, uh, I want you to see that they, in essence, are two sides of the same coin. So James says, draw near to God. And then he presents us almost with this coin. And he says, here are two sides of the same coin. And they both point to the fact that we are able to draw near to God and the power of his Holy Spirit. So if someone was to ask you, what does it look like to draw near to God, then we can respond in these two ways, two essential components. Repentance on one side and humility on the other. Repentance and humility. So let's look at the first one. Draw near to God through repentance. Um, and have a look at what, what we read in the second part of verse 8. James has just said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he follows out with these words, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Straight away, uh, we see a change in how it is that he addresses those that he's writing to. So if you remember in James, he often writes this kind of loving challenge to his readership. And he refers to them as my brother and sister or my dear brother and sister. So he's, he's very nice. And he often has challenging words as he says, my brother and sister, my dear brother and sister. But here he refers to them as sinners and double-minded. So there's no doubt in our minds he changes tack, he changes style, he wants to get their attention. So instead of <clears throat> my brother and sister, my dear brother and sister, sinners, double-minded. And in getting their attention, he does in fact speak truth into their lives. He calls them sinners and double-minded because they are that. They are double-minded sinners. And we see this elsewhere in the letter. Look at what James writes to these believers. James 1 verse 19 and if you go all the way through to chapter 2 and 26 we read there are people who fail to act on what it is they hear and say so they are they're double-minded they're sinfully double-minded james 3 verses 9 to 10 we read that these people were a people who bless god and curse people made in god's image so there's blessing and cursing coming out of the same mouth and that can so often be us we can come on a sunday we can sing praises to god and then we can curse people 
either to their face or behind their back. James 3.14, James is clear that they have envy and selfish ambition in their hearts. They boast and deny the truth. James 4.1-2, they have wars and fights among each other from passions that wage war within them. They desire and do not have. They murder and covet and cannot obtain. They fight and wage war. So for all of these reasons and probably many more, James wants these people to understand why it is he says what he says and why he calls them double-minded and sinners. And in these verses, James challenges the early church to cleanse their hands and purify their hearts. And as we read these words, we can't help but think of Psalm 24 in verses 3 to 5. So David the psalmist says this, and it's, James is very much echoing these words of the psalmist. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So James is echoing King David. And in doing this, James is underlining how essential it is for you and I to have clean hands and a pure heart. And I think deep down, we all want that. We would all agree, amen, yeah. We all want clean hands. We all want a pure heart. We all desire to be everything that God has called us to be. And it shows just the, the challenge of God's word to be single-mindedly pursuing him and his will for our lives in this world. Uh, yesterday we were doing some work in the building in Ridry. Um, and what we're doing is basically removing anything in the, in the space that could potentially cause uh, dry rot to grow. Um, and dry rot is basically this kind of alien species. It's this bacterial fungus. Um, and it, it causes buildings to rot. That's why it's called dry rot. And it's like this kind of mushroom thing that, that spreads through timber. Over a, long period of, over a long period of time, it can cause huge structural damage on buildings. Uh, Denison Baptist used to be on Meadow Park Street, and we had, we had a huge 500-seater building. And they had to close it down and, and knock it down because of dry rot. So there has been history with this church in dry rot. But at Ridray, it's not like that at all. We're not at that stage. But we are aware that there is potential for dry rot to spread. And so we're basically removing any materials that could cause dry rot to spread within this, within this building. And what we're realizing is that just as important as removing the dry rot is also removing that which could potentially cause dry rot to spread in the future. So we're not just removing the dry rot, we're also removing anything that could cause dry rot to spread. And this is what James is getting at. As he speaks about cleansing your hands, as he speaks about purifying your heart, James is wanting us to have a complete examination of all that we are, every aspect of our lives, all that we do, and quite importantly, all that we receive into our lives day after day. We don't just address a problem of sin in our lives, we also address a problem of where sin can potentially survive and thrive in our lives in the future. It might not be apparent now, but it could arise tomorrow or next week or next month or even next year. What we receive into our lives is often not necessarily bad in and of itself but it can often be the ground from which sin can then grow and flourish. And this is why Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If there's anything that might cause you to sin in the future, 
remove that from your life, even if it's good. Whatever causes us to have unclean hands and impure hearts, James calls us to get it out of our lives fully and completely. So as James says to the believers in his day that he was writing to, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says this to us today. Denison Baptist Church, 4 p.m. service. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We are sinners and we are double-minded. And it's easy for us to read these verses and say, oh, that applies to the early church. James is writing to this early church here. It's a lot more difficult for us to put ourselves into this passage and to read these words that we are sinners and we are double-minded. But if it's true for the people in James's day, it's true for each one of us today. James continues in a theme of repentance. And in verse 9, he says this to these early believers that he's writing to. He says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And again, we see echoes of the words of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 6, 26. Jeremiah says, My dear people, dress yourselves in sackcloth and roll in the dust. Mourn as you would for an only son, a bitter lament, for suddenly the destroyer will come on us. And these words of Jeremiah are quite common amongst the Old Testament prophets. There's often a call to grieve, there's a call to mourn, there's a call to wail. As they come to terms with their own sin and impending and coming judgment, James and Jeremiah and so many of the Old Testament prophets highlight something that we often find so difficult to understand. But if we truly saw our sin for what it really was and what it really is, we would mourn and weep at what it is that we have done against this holy God. If we truly came to terms with how we sin and how we have sinned against this holy God, then it would cause us to truly mourn and weep. Because the laughter and the joy that James speaks of here in this verse, it's an unrighteous laughter. It's an unrighteous joy. And they, like us, we can be so casual about our sin and we can dismiss any notion from our words and actions that have any kind of consequence at all. And so strong is this dismissiveness that we can at times find our sin funny. We can find our sin satisfying. Our sin can become a source of unrighteous joy. So as James writes this to this early church, he writes this to us. And we have to be open and honest this afternoon. We have to recognize that we can be so flippant and dismissive about our own sin. I don't know about you, but the more and more I see God for who he really is, the more and more I take time to meditate on this holy and righteous God, the more and more I'm spiritually aware and sensitive to how much I sin against him every single day. And I don't want to be casual with my sin, but I so often am. I make it something that's, that can be lighthearted. I want to see my sin as God sees it more and more, but so often I don't. And I hope that this brings me to a place where I am wholeheartedly repentant. And if that causes me to mourn and to weep, then let it be so. Let God's will be done. Because I know it for me to not deal with this problem of sin is for me to walk straight into spiritual disaster. I know that deep down in my heart, and yet I still sin every day. I still fall short. And I feel like the only way I'm able to, to experience some kind of progress and victory in this sinful journey that I take 
is to recognise how holy God is and to see how casual I can so often be when it comes to my sin. Let it not be the case in my own life and let it not be the case in your life either that we are casual, that we are flippant, that we are dismissive when it comes to sin. So repentance is the first side of this coin that James wants us to look at as we think about drawing near to God. And the other side, which we're going to spend less time looking at because we've covered a lot of it already, is humility. Humility, and this is the final verse. Let's have a look at verse 10 of our passage. James says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And this verse actually follows the same uh, flow and pattern of draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's the same sentence structure. In other words, you will reap what you sow. If you do this, then God is going to do that. And again, so similar to what Jesus himself says, Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Have a look at what the Apostle Peter writes also in, in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. So I hope we see the connection with these words and what we've just looked at together. To be humble is to be repentant. To be repentant is to be humble. They're two sides of the same coin. We cannot live lives of humility without first recognizing the reality of who God is in his holiness and the reality of who we are as sinners. So this humble repentance that James is getting at here, what does it look like for you and for me? What does it look like to be humbly repentant and in turn causing us to draw near to God? Well, firstly, notice that James says that we should be a people who humble ourselves before the Lord. And he speaks in the plural. We humble ourselves before the Lord. In other words, we practice and we nurture humility and community. We do it not by ourselves, we do it together. Meaning that we repent of our sin and community together. The issue in any church is not whether or not someone has offended you or someone has hurt you. Um, the issue is whether or not both sides then respond as a result of that hurt and offence with humility and repentance. That's, that's a defining moment in that relationship. And that should lead to even stronger relationships and an even healthier church because we know the answer to this problem. We experience hurt, we experience offence, but we know the answer is humility and repentance on both sides. So community with one another is so important when it comes to humility and repentance. And secondly, this humble repentance that James speaks of, this is when we are a people who humble ourselves before the Lord. This is what James says. We humble ourselves before this holy God. In other words, God has to be at the very heart of our humbling journey. We must come to God if we, are come, if we are to come to a place of experience and true and authentic humility. We cannot, buy, we cannot bypass God in order to achieve this reality of humility. It has to be through God and in Him. You need to understand this afternoon, your humility is truly dependent on God stepping in and doing something in your life. You cannot be, become someone who is marked by humility without God being at work in and through you. And Douglas Mooney's commentary and James says this, and I believe this is just so helpful for us as we think about hum humility. He says, to humble ourselves before the Lord 
means to recognize our own spiritual poverty, to acknowledge consequently our desperate need of God's help, and to submit to his commanding will for our lives. So we recognize our spiritual poverty. We acknowledge our need of God. We submit to his commanding will for our lives. Finally, there's community, there's God with humility. There's also this humble repentance that James speaks of as the only pathway we can go down in order to then receive God's blessing and blessing in the right sense. I don't know about you, but we so often try to bless ourselves. We so often try to exalt ourselves, thinking our own strength and our own effort is going to get us there. We rely on our own abilities, our own status, money, achievements, and we find ourselves falling into spiritual failure and condemnation. But God, by his grace, when God humbles us, when we continue to live in humility, that brings us to a place where we're exalted and exalted in the right sense of that word, exalted in the sense of God at work in our lives, exalted in the sense that we have a hope and a future for this life and the life to come, exalted in the sense that he is glorified in our lives, no matter what we, what we go through, no matter what we face, in the good times and in the bad times, God is glorified. This is what it means to be exalted. I don't know if you've heard the story of the Lewis Revival, um, and I've mentioned this before, just last year we, we had a, a prayer time one Wednesday uh, and we took time just to, to sort of recount some of that story. But it's a story of, of two sisters, November 1949, uh, Peggy and Christine Smith, 84 and 82 years old. Peggy was completely blind. Uh, Christine was bent over with arthritis and they were both, they just carried this deep, heavy burden for the spiritual state of a village of Barvis and Lewis. And they sensed, as sisters, as they, they took time to chat and to pray together, they sensed the Lord was speaking to them. And particularly Isaiah 44 and verse 3, I will pour water in the thirsty land and streams in the dry ground. And so they started to pray in their small cottage <clears throat> two to three nights per week. They would pray from 10 p.m. to 3 in the morning. So five hours, two or three nights a week, these two ladies in their 80s praying. And after several weeks of praying like this, Peggy had a vision of her church being crowded with young people and an unknown minister preaching from the pulpit. They sensed the Lord was going to send revival. They told their minister, and the church leaders then spent every Tuesday and Friday night in prayer, and they were asking that God would move. They were, they were believing that God was going to step in and do this great and mighty thing. And more and more people started to join these prayer times. And it was in a barn. It was freezing cold. It was a winter time. There was no heating. They were in, the, in these barns for hours and hours asking that God would, would step in and do this mighty and precious work. And one evening while the minister and church leaders were praying, a young deacon read from Psalm 24, 3 to 5, the verses we just spent time looking at. Psalm 24, David says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And this young man closed his Bible. He looked at the minister and he looked at everyone around him. And he said this, he said, it seems to me to be so much humbug to be praying as we are praying to be waiting as we are waiting, 
if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. He then prayed, God, are my hands clean? God, is my heart pure? And immediately, three o'clock in the morning, the presence of God fell, gripped every person who was there. And it wasn't just the people in this barn, the men and women who were in this barn. The entire village, the surrounding area, started to sense this awareness of God. They had drawn near to God and he had drawn near to them. As they left the barn that morning, they found men and women kneeling along the roads. Three in the morning, they were kneeling along the roads and they were crying out to God for mercy. Every home had lights on it, on in it. And as no one could sleep with such an awareness of God, they were overwhelmed by the presence of God in this moment. And this began the Lewis revival. And this, this was such a significant moment, not just in the history of this island, but the history of Christianity and in our nation. And I wonder today, are you gripped by that possibility in your own life? Are you gripped by that? Do you believe that, that God can do that today as he once did in Lewis? And I think we need to ask these, those same questions this, this young man asked. God, are my hands clean? God, is, is my heart pure? We all need to ask that tonight. Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? That has to be our starting point. If we long to see God move in our lives and in this community and in this city and in this nation, we have to ask those two questions. We have to echo the words of the psalmist. So let that be a moment for us today. As we respond and worship, we're going to sing in a, in a minute. But I just want you to take a moment to ask that question. God, are my hands clean? God, is my heart pure? And God, do I honestly desire to see you work in a, such a way that you worked in 1949 in Lewis through these two ladies and through that church community? So as we respond, again, we so a wee bit different from our 6 p.m. time. We're going to have tea and coffee afterwards. I know we were doing that uh, before, um, but we're going to have a time of response so we can have fellowship, tea and coffee. But again, do not waste that moment to receive prayer. Uh, this morning we had an opportunity to have fellowship and it was amazing just to see a number of people being prayed for uh, throughout the space. So if you need prayer, we can pray in here, we can pray in one of the rooms um, outside of this, this space. Don't miss out on what God might do through this time. This is a moment, this is an opportunity for us to meet with God as we sing and as we come to the table. And we're going to come to the table today and, and recognise all that God is to us. And we're going to take a moment to thank him for his gift, the gift of his son. Jesus died on the cross for each one of our sins. And so we respond in light of his abundant grace, in light of his abundant mercy towards each one of us. So if you love the Lord today, we invite you to come to the table, to take this bread, to drink this cup, and for each one of us to say, thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Thank you that I am now a part of your family, and thank you that I have this church family here who can pray for me, who can bless me, who can encourage me. It was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, 
do so in remembrance of me. For as often as we take this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So we should, we should come to this table with excitement and joy that God is one day going to return. And we do so with expectation of what he will do in our lives today. So take this bread, drink this cup if you love the Lord. Recognize God's grace and mercy towards us. He's drawn near to us. We can respond through song. We can respond in prayer for one another after our time today. And we can respond with expectation that God is going to work in and through us as we go into this week. So let's pray together. Father, we, we take this time and we ask that you would bless us. We recognize that, that we need your grace. We need your strength today. We pray that by your spirit you would transform our hearts and give, give us a fresh uh, love and desire and longing for you. Lord, may our hearts be pure. May our hands be clean. May we see you because we choose to live that, to walk down that pathway of holiness. So would you minister to us through this time? Would you work in us? And may we choose to say yes to you as we go into this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.